Today's episode is a great one, all about metabolic health and longevity with Dr. Ron Sinya. There's a term that's been thrown out there called email apnea. And literally what it means is when we are actually composing messages at the computer or texting on our phone, most of us actually stop breathing. We completely stop breathing while we're actually typing or we truncate breathing dramatically. And our primitive brain doesn't know that you're composing a text message and responding to an email. It thinks you're suffocating, right? So what do you think that's gonna do to our liver? Our liver is gonna be like, that's like the fundamental, if you're thinking of like the first order stressor for the liver to produce stress hormone, it's a lack of oxygen, right? We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper. Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Camp Podcast. Thank you for pressing play today at all the options you chose us, and we are so grateful. We've got a lot of vitamin G gratitude for you right now. And you're going to love the episode we have for you today with Dr. Ron. I, I love this man. He is brilliant. He does a fantastic job at taking the research and giving it to you in a way that the anybody could understand it and, and say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Light bulb moment, light bulb moment. So you're going to hear about a story about being a conventional doctor, being unhealthy and overweight. And he had his own light bulb moments and what he did to change his health and change the way he practiced to more of an alternative functional approach. And then we get into some of the topics that you're going to want to learn because these are the top questions I get asked on social media regarding keto. And that is why cholesterol might go up with a ketogenic diet and LDL might go up, but is that a bad thing? So we're going to really unpack a complete lipid panel. We're going to talk about cholesterol, HDL, LDL, LDL particles, triglycerides, inflammatory markers. We'll talk about calculators. We're going to give you the full blueprint here so you could see if you really are at risk for heart disease or is your doctor just not keeping up with the research. So one of the most popular questions I get asked is about cholesterol. And this is the episode for you. And we kind of start off the episode with that. We talk about advanced lipid testing and so much more. He has a great analogy on the particle sizes of LDL, which is going to help you really understand how that works. And then we get into something I love called emotional metabolism. Dr. Ron says stress is worse than chocolate cake. What? Uh, we talk a lot about stress and mastering stress, and you're going to hear how stress is so detrimental towards health and how it raises glucose it wipes out the adrenals, uh, floods the liver with glucose, and uh, a lot of bad things happen. And the best ways to overcome being stressed out. And he loves vitamin G, gratitude, mindful breathing. He's going to give you some practical tips on that. And then we get into a, a topic I love discussing, which is heart rate variability and how it's a great marker to look at how well you're doing with your nervous system, which is your parasympathetic rest and digest nervous system versus your sympathetic fight or flight and how you want to have a good balance of both. Many people, including myself, are more sympathetic and that's an issue. So we talk about balancing that out, what HRV actually means, how to test for it. We get into intermittent fasting and uh, the pros and cons of intermittent fasting. We understand that fasting is a tool. Like all tools, you have to know how to use it. Chainsaw is a tool and it could be an amazing tool if you know how to use it, but chainsaw could hurt you you don't know how to use it. So he's going to talk about the pitfalls of fasting and protein. Why eating protein early in the day 
improves glucose and mood overall. We talk about mTOR and autophagy. We get into his three things to consider regarding your health. He calls it the three C's, carbs, cooking oils, and circadian rhythm. You're going to love Dr. Ron. We put his website, his podcast, the Meta Health Podcast, his social media, all down below for you to check out. You could also watch the video format of today's interview with Dr. Ron and all Keto Camp podcast interviews on the Keto Camp YouTube channel over at youtube.com slash keto camp, camp with a K. Hey, before I bring on Dr. Ron, let's acknowledge and get to the Apple podcast rating and review of the day. This is a five-star review from Soul Sailor. And it's regarding a recent interview we did with Dr. Oz Garcia. This is a good one. So the title of this review is Benazadi's podcast with Dr. Oz Garcia, how this doctor overcame COVID. And here's what Soul Sealer said. The whole podcast from the interview questions to the guest answering it were well conveyed and very appropriate for anyone who's experiencing the symptoms of long haulers or has a close family member or friend who has it. His explanation of his experience and how he's using sleep, food, supplements to help mitigate and overcome these symptoms resonated with me as a person who actively is working to improve my health and mitigating post-COVID syndrome, aka long hauler syndrome. Because of this podcast, I will obtain Dr. Oz Garcia's book, have more conversations with my doctor, and continue with intermittent fasting, low-carb, carnivore lifestyle I have recently found. Sleep is an amazing healer, and Ben and Dr. Garcia laid it out in a way that is easy for anyone to understand how it heals and restores. Excellent podcast, powerful and painful topic, very prevalent to current public health events. That is a good review. I'm so glad you listened to it because I'm sorry you're dealing with long COVID symptoms. I have some friends as well, and you're going to overcome it hopefully sooner rather than later. I'm so glad you came across the episode with Dr. Oz Garcia. If you haven't heard that episode, it's episode 476 of the Keto Camp podcast. It came out a few weeks ago, and his book is called After COVID. Keep healing, Soul Sailor. Let us know how it goes for you, and bravo. Thanks for uh, listening to the show and leaving that rating and review. If you haven't left the Keto Camp podcast a rating and review yet, please head over to your podcast service, whatever you're listening to, and do so right now. It'll make a big difference for the show. If you haven't downloaded my free Keto Camp Blueprint, which is an aisle-by-aisle grocery shopping list for the foods to eat on keto, healthy proteins, fats, and carbs, how to test for glucose and ketones, optimal ranges, Keto Flex approved carbohydrates, healthy sweeteners versus the ones you want to avoid, Head over to ketocampblueprint.com, campus ball with the K, and download it for free. Take it to the grocery store. That is your blueprint for the foods to eat on keto and the foods to stay away from, ketocampblueprint.com. All right, let's speak with Dr. Ron all about metabolic health. Today, I'm blessed to have Dr. Ron Sinya, who is the author of The South Asian Health Solution, and he's an internal medicine physician and expert on insulin resistance and corporate wellness. His groundbreaking research and work in reversing diabetes and insulin resistance in diverse populations has been featured on the front cover of Fortune Magazine and LA Times. He is a top-rated speaker from companies like Google, Oracle, Cisco, and more. He serves as Chief Medical Officer for Silicon Valley Employer Forum, where he helps shape global health benefits for more than 55 major tech companies. Here's Dr. Ron. Dr. Ron Sinha, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast. Great to be here. Thanks. I was just telling you offline that I really enjoyed researching your work and preparing for today's interview. I think it's going to be a really valuable one for the audience who's watching and listening. You have uh, done incredible work uh, in the health space. And let's go back to kind of the roots here. You had uh, a practice, you were doing internal medicine, and there was also some struggles with your health. So I'd love for you to share some of the struggles you had. And then number that's number one. Number two, how did you start integrating more of a holistic alternative approach to a conventional approach? Yeah, a great point. And you know, when I came out of medical training, you know, when we're taught about conditions like diabetes and heart disease, we typically learn hard science, but then we learn case studies. And a lot of the case studies I came across were 
literally older folks that are eating, you know, a lot of fat, a lot of sugar, they're smoking and they're developing diabetes and heart disease in their 60s or 70s. So I kind of came out with that snapshot in my head when I entered practice. And my practice started in Silicon Valley up in Northern California in the Bay Area. And as I sort of started seeing patients in that clinic, I was startled by how, although I was seeing that typical archetype of insulin resistance and heart disease and diabetes, I was seeing quite a few young people coming in in their 30s and 40s already manifesting with signs of early heart disease risk. So that was a bit of an alarm signal because I was like, am I seeing some skewed population here or is this just an exception? But as I was seeing more and more folks like this, I realized that this is different than what I learned about medical school. And I was about the same age as like the average males that were coming to my clinic. And I was, you know, giving them the standard dietary advice on cutting back on fats and doing all the things, you know, trying to adhere to the food pyramid, which is what I was doing along with exercise and actively. And then what I ended up seeing is that I was actually starting to develop the same conditions I was treating my patients with. So I developed pretty significant insulin resistance really early on when I started my practice. I didn't have frank diabetes, but I had major metabolic syndrome, typically the high triglycerides and low HDL, and my glucose was moving in the wrong direction. And that was an aha moment because I felt really, um, to be frank, I felt kind of like a fraud at that point. I'm like, here I am dishing out the advice, but my own numbers were moving in the wrong direction. So what exactly is happening here? And that really motivated me to take a very different look at the information that I'd been given and really trying to think about what are some different ways that I can approach this. Clearly, I don't want to put myself on a bunch of drugs. I don't want to put these young 20, 30-year-olds on a bunch of drugs. I've got to find a lifestyle approach to this. And I want to give you actually another excerpt that kind of fast forwards. I literally just took my internal medicine boards a few days ago. We take the test every 10 years to recertify. It's a 10-hour exam. And literally the exam, I was so frustrated, I actually posted on Instagram on this because it hasn't changed in 20 years. Out of hundreds of pages that I looked through on diabetes, heart disease, everything, I'm, I'm not kidding you, there was three bullet points on lifestyle. And basically they were like, eat a low salt diet, eat less fat, that's it. And as I took this test too, there was not a single question on nutrition and lifestyle. So it just gives you a flavor that despite the fact that we're acknowledging that diet and lifestyle are causing the root cause of all this, me as an internist in that early practice, we're still not being equipped with the knowledge to find this. So so really, this is where I just sort of take a separate journey into sort of performing my own lifestyle interventions and then using those in my patients. And then since I was in Silicon Valley, I started to take that message out to companies to really help them find a lifestyle that would really attack that insulin resistant issue, that prediabetes and diabetes head on without the traditional health information. That's wild about the uh, the boards and how it hasn't changed. I mean, it's not surprising to me, especially when you look at the general recommendations from you know the food pyramid, the food plate, my plate, et cetera, and the recent Tufts University food compass, right? You should be encouraged to eat frosted mini wheats, but you should stay away or limit um, red meat, limit uh, eggs cooked in butter. It's the complete opposite, really, of what we should be doing for a lifestyle change, isn't it? Oh, completely the opposite. Yeah. And then the lack of nuance and personalization. I mean, I understand as a public health measure, you do have to put some general guidelines out there, but the general guidelines right now are affecting the population in such adverse ways. And, and you know, the, the issue is we definitely have physicians because sometimes patients see me in my clinic and they become very frustrated that how come my doctor doesn't know this? You know, they're not motivated to help me. And really physicians are predominantly empathetic. They want to help their patients, but they have not been given the training resources. And even in their ongoing education, practitioners, they're still not being given the resources. So literally, I had to study for a test that I just had to, be, the only updates were drugs and diagnostic tests, but nothing else really around that. So it's, it's, it's a very frustrating process for doctors. But the good news is physicians are now leaning on growing numbers of resources. And frankly, podcasts like yours as well, too, doctors are listening to these things because they're frustrated with the current approach. They don't want to put all their patients on drugs. So luckily, even though the system hasn't changed, the amount of resources and experts, physician and non-physician out there is really um, encouraging me that we're going to have more doctors that can really uh, address the situation. Absolutely. And what about the pressure, though? I mean, I know it's different now than it was when you started to make those changes for your patients and for yourself, first and foremost. But the pressure, what I mean by that is 
it's not standard to start looking at, okay, maybe we got to increase your fat, lower your carbohydrates, practice time-restricted feeding. Like, did you get some heat from colleagues? Did they call you like a quack? I mean, what were some of the arrows <laughs> that you got? And are you still getting that right now from some colleagues? Yeah, listen, um, back then, so to be specific, I was especially seeing a very diverse population, a lot of Asian Indian vegetarians, for example, and they had some of the worst triglycerides and glucoses that I've ever seen. So that already told me that, wait, this vegetarian diet, which frankly, in that population is more of a grainitarian diet. They're not eating a lot of vegetables. And just like the Latino population, right? It's a lot of flatbreads, it's rice, it's a lot of beans. They're not necessarily consuming a lot of the traditional junk food. But at that point, I realized that um, I've got to take a different approach. And I did realize when I decided to write a book about this topic that a lot of what I'm saying, a lot of my colleagues might look at and say, what is he talking about? These folks with high LDLs, how could he possibly put these folks on this diet? So I was kind of ready for a lot of backlash. But the nice thing is I took such a scientific approach. I'm like, if I'm going to do this, I can't just do it in a flippant way. I've got to dig deep into the research. I've got to show folks like the data behind this and really teach them about things like triglyceride ratio ratios and other markers of insulin resistance. So I went in there with a lot of evidence to back me up. And I started sort of a small core with my colleagues at the local clinic. They understood. I helped them interpret advanced lipid profiles. So I didn't get as much backlash as I would have anticipated. I think if I was in a one-off sort of practice that was disconnected from a large healthcare system, it probably would have been more difficult. But because I was already colleagues, I'd sit down with these docs and explain the situation to them. I had a relatively easier time. And when my book came out, I was really expecting a lot of backlash. And frankly, one of the people that was my advisor in even writing my book was Dr. Jerry Rebin, who coined the term metabolic syndrome, right? So that's huge backing from somebody, you know, who actually was at the root of basically a lot of this research. And he understood the issue as being a carbohydrate intolerant issue. So like, despite me sort of being in the early stages of this, there were a lot of very well-respected physicians and scientists that had done tremendous research. So I'd kind of lean on their shoulders anytime I was getting backlash to say, hey, Jerry says this is okay. You know, Jerry very early on is saying that egg yolks are fine for most individuals, you know, and we're not seeing metabolic disturbances as a result of that. So I, I had some nice bodyguards around me in the early stages when I sort of started this movement. And then really, as doctors started seeing great results from re referring patients to me, they wanted to learn more about this. They saw their patients, not only their numbers look good, their patients were feeling good and looking younger. And every doctor wants that for their patients. So, so luckily, it was really positive, beneficial. And now, fast forward to now, so many physicians are now doing similar things in their practice, which has been encouraging. Yeah, that is very encouraging. And what a blessing to have him as your mentor and, and have that backing. Where do you see this going, though? Because there was that study that came out in 2018 from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, looking at thousands of people assessing how healthy or unhealthy is the American adult population. And they determined that about 88% of American adults are metabolically unhealthy. And of course, that was before COVID, it's probably got worse. And then we have podcasts like this, your work, your books, we have these really forward thinking practitioners. Where is it going? Is it, is it going in the positive direction where we could see a dent in these numbers in five years? Or is it going in that direction where Harvard predicts by 2030, 50% of American adults will be obese? So where do you see this going? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, definitely a growing movement amongst physician practitioners, and I think it's been very encouraging, but I'm honestly not as optimistic that guidelines are going to change dramatically. Um, I've you know worked with a lot of scientists and physicians that are either on some of these guideline committees or they are experts that advise these guideline committees, and those are the ones that are very difficult to influence. So literally, like, it's still, as you know, the risk calculators. I'll give you one example. So if you see a doctor and they're trying to estimate your your future risk of heart disease, they might use a cardiovascular risk calculator. There are various versions of that. And the standard things you put into that risk calculator are things like your age, your blood pressure, your LDL cholesterol. And it's very interesting that, you know, even my patients that I'd see that had a heart attack at age 35 or 40, I would go through the exercise of, you know, before they had this heart attack, I'm going to put their numbers in a calculator and see what their 10-year risk is. And there were so many times that the risk was listed as less than 5%, like in the lowest case, right? And the reason for that, again, is because that calculator is taking in metrics that are, again, LDL-centric. I'm not saying LDL is, you know, totally benign here, but, you know, it's just LDL, it's blood pressure, it's age, it's all those things. 
but where's the triglyceride? Where's the waist circumference? Where are all the other lifestyle factors that we're going to talk about? So I'm seeing so many people that are ranked as low risk, but they're really, really high risk. And when you understand the nuances of cholesterol, you realize that individuals that are very insulin resistant on a standard lipid profile, they tend to have relatively lower LDLs because they've got more small, dense, dangerous LDL. So you put that into a standard risk calculator and it's gonna make you look like you're lower risk even though you've got these dangerous atherogenic insulin resistant cholesterol particles. So, so you know, when I educate folks about their like, aha, and the doctors get it, it doesn't take much convincing. But, you know, am I optimistic that the actual guidelines are going to change to really reflect that? There are modified calculators that individuals are using throughout the world. So some do incorporate triglycerides, et cetera. So I'm trying to get colleagues to use that. I feel like the rest of the world is some, somewhat advanced when it comes to using some of these things. Like, for example, the UK, where they have a national healthcare system with a lot of Indians that have insulin resistance, they've been motivated to use modified calculators that integrate insulin resistance into it. And sometimes I'm using those tools. But here in the good old-fashioned USA, I feel like we're still way behind in using those tools. So, so a mixed response. I feel like the physicians, there's a surge there. But the st standard guidelines and the tools that we use, they've got a long way to go to incorporate a lot of this. Yeah, it's really uh, going to be like a grassroots approach, right? Um, people who are self-educating themselves. A lot of the things that we've been taught, um, we really need to unlearn and then relearn. It reminds me of a quote from a gentleman named Alvin Toffler. He said, the illiterate of the 21st century are not those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and then relearn. Because a lot of those guidelines, what we've learned, we really need to unlearn it and then relearn what the truth is. So you mentioned one of those things, which is LDL. One of the most common comments I get on probably like a YouTube video is, Ben, I started doing keto and my uh, LDL is up or my total triglyceride is up and my doctor is worried. He wants me to stop doing keto. He wants me to go on a statin. But you just explained there's a lot of moving parts here, especially the LDL part. So I'd love for you to dive a little bit deeper into the small particles versus large particles and the other things we want to pay attention to for cardiovascular risk. Yeah, sure. So when you focus in on the lipid profile, which basically, like you said, has the total cholesterol, the triglycerides, um, the HDL as being the main components there, what you're really looking at is obviously you're given absolute numbers on a standard lipid profile, but there is nuance to it. So for example, the LDL you're given is a total number, it's a total concentration, but it doesn't really break it into the specific particle types. So the way I explain it, and it's been explained in similar ways um, as well, is you think of that lipoprotein as being a boat that carries cholesterol. And we've got two different sizes of these boats. We've got the large luxury liners, which are the type A LDL. We've got the smaller boats too that are the type B. And I just remind people to think of B as being the bad boats. And that doesn't mean that A is off the hook, by the way. You can have a lot of the A type boats, which are less harmful, but they can still crash into your artery walls and cause plaque formation. But typically it's an abundance of the smaller particles that really cause more of the damage. When you're looking at a standard profile, you're not going to get that clarity. So the only way you can really get that is by getting an advanced lipid profile. And the good news is these used to be very expensive first when I started my practice, but now insurance covers them. They're very affordable. You can even go off your own um, health plan and basically even privately, you can order these tests for very reasonable prices and they'll break it down into type A versus type B. But I'll tell you that there's a very simple way for you to kind of estimate whether you're more of a type A or a type B LDL person. And it's purely based on your triglycerides. So for most individuals, if your triglycerides are consistently above 150, there's just a really huge chance you've got more type B LDLs, a smaller particle size. If you're above 200, it's guaranteed. Some individuals, even above a triglyceride level of 100, they already start shifting into the smaller type B LDL particles. So, so I tell people, you know, if you're not going to be getting the test or if you have some barrier, use the triglyceride as a surrogate marker. And even my practice, I, if you came in to see me and you'd never had an advanced lipid profile, we might do that one time. But then the follow-up tests, I can just tell based on your triglyceride levels if your particle is going to shift. Now, you brought up a key point about how do we now interpret LDL? And this is where things get tricky. And early on when I was educating my colleagues and they'd refer patients to me, when I'd see really insulin-resistant, high-risk folks, and I was in this category too, at some one point my triglycerides were in the 350s, and interestingly, my LDL was about 85 to 90. But I knew based on that that I had a ton of small particles, and that's why on a standard lipid profile, my LDL, it looked, quote, normal, okay? So now what I do is when I get patients like that in my clinic, I tell the doctors that when they improve, 
actually the LDL is probably going to go up because if it's going to become larger particles, it's probably going to go from 85 to 110 or it's 120, but the triglycerides are going to come back down. So the amount of particles are going to go down. So, you know, those are the nuances that people need to know, because otherwise, if they just look at the absolute LDL without the other numbers in mind, then it's going to be very confusing. So aside from absolute triglyceride, I'm sure you've talked about this before, but just to emphasize that triglyceride to HDL ratio is just a critical number. And that's not on standard lab reports. Hardly any of them report them. So taking your triglycerides, dividing by the HDL, making sure that ratio is definitely less than three, but closer to less than two or even less than 1.5 is even more optimal. But that number, when that ratio improves, independent of whatever happens to the LDL, it's probably going to be more of the type A and the particle numbers, which is important, is probably going to go down as a result of that. So that's that scenario. Now, there are some individuals that have very high LDLs, and genetics plays a big role with that. Some individuals just inherit really high LDLs. I have some patients that are elite athletes. They cannot be any fitter and healthier. Their LDL is above 200. I'm sure, as you've talked about with your audience, some people, they go on the keto diet and their LDL skyrockets, but their other ratio numbers are fine. And this is the murky territory, so much controversy. You know, one camp will say, are you crazy? How can you walk around with an LDL of 200? And others are like, hey, if you're keto, it doesn't matter. You know, so there's a lot of that going back and forth. Do I have a definitive answer for you today? Not yet. I think there's some exciting research coming out that we'll have to look at. But to address that, if I do see someone whose belly fat, their abdominal circumference is going down, they've lost weight, their ratios are great, their blood pressure is good. It's hard for me to look at that patient and say, I'm gonna put you on 80 milligrams of Lipitor based on guidelines, right? So, so that's where I might do some intermediate range testing. Maybe I'll check an inflammatory test like HSC reactive protein to see if there's inflammation at the blood vessel level. I might have a low threshold for getting a coronary calcium scan, which is a CT scan of your coronary arteries to see if there might be some plaque. And if your plaque score is zero, uh, it's not definitive, but there's a really high degree of certainty that you probably don't have any signs of plaque early on. So if I take those patients and I follow them over time, I can feel a little bit more comfortable not having to put them on a statin. But I will tell you, that's, that's a good side. I have had some patients with a significant family history. Their LDLs went up really high. And over the years, they actually did develop plaque. So I'm definitely in the camp that an LDL of whatever level is fine. As long as you're in ketogenesis and your other numbers are fine, there is a threshold effect where very high LDLs can potentially have some damage. And that risk varies in each individual. Some of my patients that have a significant family history, I find that even though they're healthy, they might be ketogenic. That LDL, like a magnet, looks like it's actually hitting the arterial wall. So, so I want people to just be aware of that, that you know, all high LDLs are not benign, even if you're keto and your other numbers are fine. I'll give you a example there, but hopefully that addresses a lot of what you brought. No, it's really good. And if you, know, you kind of got lost in that conversation, just rewind it and get those markers done. Calcium scores are terrific. It'll, it'll show you some really good feedback. Hey, Keto Camper, I want to just pause for a second and tell you about my favorite drink from Metabolic Health. On this podcast, we talk about the importance of metabolic health, metabolic flexibility. Well, this is called good idea, and it is a great idea if you are trying to reduce blood sugar and keep your insulin levels in a healthy range. It has zero calories, zero sweeteners, and none of the junk ingredients, and it tastes like a lightly sparkling water. I call it a functional sparkling water because it has been clinically tested and shown to reduce blood sugar spikes after a meal. It contains a blend of amino acids and chromium piclinate. Together, they slow gastric emptying and increase insulin sensitivity, allowing a steady release of glucose in the bloodstream where it can be transferred into the cells for fuel. It also contains zinc and potassium as an added benefit. They hooked you all up with a special coupon code. So all you need to do is head over to goodidea.us and apply the coupon code BEN, that is B-E-N, at checkout at goodidea.us. I'm going to drop that link in the podcast notes along with the coupon code. All right, let's get back to this episode. I, I love that you're looking at all the moving parts here. You're not just looking at total cholesterol, total LDL. You're also incorporating HSCRP, which is great, an inflammatory marker. And then you make a decision based off of these moving parts. What I've seen is that people, doctors in general, um, they're looking at maybe just total cholesterol, total LDL, and then that's the decision to either write that statin prescription or not. But it's actually, in fact, more dangerous, and you could tell me if you agree, more dangerous to have low cholesterol than it is high cholesterol because cholesterol is important for your sex hormones. It's important for the brain. So what are your thoughts on having low cholesterol? 
No, it's true. Some people are being over aggressively managed. Now, on the one hand, if you're somebody, unfortunately, I have a fair number of patients in my clinic that have multivessel coronary artery disease, they've got diffuse plaque. And with those patients, we're just trying to put out a major fire in their heart. So we've got to bring those LDL levels down pretty aggressively. But other folks don't fall into that category. And for whatever reason, they've been put on a really high dosage or a medication that's just too strong and their LDL is like 40. And I'm like, okay, that's exactly right. That's going to have other impact. We can't, you know, we're not trying to get LDL cholesterol down to zero necessarily. Now, now one, one thing just about the biochemistry of cholesterol is when your LDL is 40 or like theoretically, if your LDL was zero, it's not that you don't have cholesterol in the body. This is kind of the lipoproteins that we're measuring the bloodstream. But to your point, yeah, you have to assess the risk of the individual because there are some practitioners out there that feel like, everybody that walks through the door should be on a high dose statin and the LDL should be there. And that's just not right. Because in addition to the um, adverse effects of having cholesterol that's too low, you know, there is some potential risk of being on a high dose statin starting at age 30 or 40 for the rest of your life, you know? So, so we don't want to expose somebody to too much medication, more than what's necessary to bring their risk levels down. Well said. And let's transition now to stress. I know that you teach about the mindset, about mastering stress. And you have said something really interesting. You said stress is worse than chocolate cake. What do you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> so this, you know, so I run a lot of corporate programs through my work using continuous glucose monitors, aka CGMs, which you've probably talked about before. And, you know, although people, you know, the obvious things they see with CGMs are what happens with your dietary impact on glucose, what happens with exercise. But the less obvious ones, and these are the ones that kind of fascinate me, is what is the emotional impact of your behaviors, your thoughts on glucose control? I find it so, super fascinating. And it's really a way to motivate people to take things like stress seriously, because we hear about this stuff, right? We know stress is not good for us, but how do we quantify it? Just like if you were to eat a bagel and measure your blood sugar, that's a pretty obvious connection. So I started looking at my participants to see, I want you to really keep a diary and track what your emotional status is um, and measure glucose against that without diet sort of being in the way. So somebody for my team, as we're rolling out these programs to companies, you know, young girl, she's wearing a sensor, all her numbers are great, better than mine, you know, no glucose variations, hardly any, even from eating. And then all of a sudden one evening, this is during like the peak of the pandemic, she has a heated discussion with her in-laws basically around, you know, COVID vaccines. And her blood glucose, she'd barely eaten. I think she had like a slab of meat. She hadn't had any carbs. Her glucose goes up from like 85 or 90 to 180 just from that conflict. And the, and the neat thing is because she's followed a lot of my stress seminars, instead of just kind of overreacting, she kind of left the dinner table. She went outside. She did some deep breathing. She came back in and then she had chocolate cake with her family and her in-laws and her glucose was like even better. It was like only 120. So I just kind of made the joke that, hey, so your in-laws and stress can be worse than eating chocolate cake. But, but we see that impact quite a bit. And I'd say there's variability. It, just like blood pressure, some people are very stress sensitive. Like they come into the doctor's office, they see a doctor, their blood pressure goes up. And we call that white coat hypertension. For me, my blood pressure luckily is fine and nothing deviates my blood pressure. It stays rock stable. But I'm somebody that is stress sensitive when it comes to glucose emotional stress, ruminations, my glucose goes up. Even if I'm like on zero grams of carb, it doesn't matter. And we see that impact in some individuals where they're acutely stress sensitive. And what that basically means is their liver is very susceptible. Literally, it's like at the very most subtle early signs of stress, the liver is going to flood the system with glucose because it really thinks you're about to be chased or something dramatic is happening. And when you see that on the sensor, now we've quantified the impact of stress. And a lot of my patients or wellness participants will actually now do meaningful things to try to mitigate and, ma and manage that stress. I call the you know this whole process emotional metabolism, really what your emotions doing to glucose control in the body. So really powerful stuff to, to share with patients and uh, participants. Really powerful. And so some people kind of they might poo-poo this conversation, but the way you could not, I mean, really believe this is the case is put a CGM on and see what the stress is doing to you. Now I understand why you said before we hit record, you don't watch the news because that will raise your cortisol and your glucose. I don't watch the news either. Emotional metabolism is such a great term for this. I really believe personally that 95% of success in health or in all areas of life is really mindset, the inner sizing and 5% strategy and the strategy needs to be really, really good. I practice this a lot. And one of my favorite 
I call it a supplement. One of my favorite supplements for getting your body in this parasympathetic dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin state is getting in vitamin G. And I call it vitamin G because it's a practicing gratitude. And uh, I really believe gratitude has made a huge difference for me. When I lecture on stages, I go into the science of it. I show what Dr. Joe Dispenza has shown and brain scans. And so I want to hear from you. Um, how you recommend using gratitude and has, has gratitude made a big difference for yourself and your patients? Oh man, I love vitamin G. I got to hold on to that one, but absolutely. And you know, it's just, there's so many, so many things we take for granted and re really I'm um, using um, the pandemic, you know, at the time of this recording that there were a lot of opportunities for gratitude, but I felt like for a lot of people, gratitude has a very short shelf life. Like you think about it, then all of a sudden we're back to our old patterns and we're just taking so many things for granted. So it does need to be an exercise and a practice, but really again, bringing it back to glucose control, Oftentimes, we might do these things maybe a few times a week, maybe in the evening or the weekends or in a specific context. But when we really need it the most is in the course of our daily chaotic lives. Like when we're in the middle, we just finished a, a stressful Zoom meeting or there's a conflict. Like how do you bring gratitude and other allied sort of practices on the spot? So that's something I really try to teach my patients because sometimes they might do their breathing and their journaling in the morning, but then their mind goes into utter chaos when they've got to deal with their kids and their spouse and their partner and their work and all that. So, so one thing is definitely if there's moments of gratitude throughout the day, absolutely powerful. But this is where I lean on vitamin B, I guess we'd call it, or maybe that's not the right word, but breathing, vitamin O for oxygen, right? So just people being mindful of their breathing patterns. When I've gotten people to breathe better, during the day, we've seen powerful improvements in blood pressure and blood glucose. And really, this is something you can do anytime, like you're in a Zoom meeting. So interestingly, I've done a lot of writings and podcasting on breathing and just telling people, this is not my term, but there's a term that's been thrown out there called email apnea. And literally what it means is when we are actually composing messages at the computer or texting on our phone, most of us actually stop breathing. We completely stop breathing while we're actually typing or we truncate breathing dramatically. And our primitive brain doesn't know that you're composing a text message and responding to an email. It thinks you're suffocating, right? So what do you think that's going to do to our liver? Our liver is going to be like, that's like the fundamental, if you're thinking of like the first order stressor for the liver to produce stress hormone, it's a lack of oxygen, right? So throughout the day, we're on email and we're doing things, even if we're speaking a lot, actually, a lot of us speak a lot, and that's you and my profession, even that can cause a little bit of a rapid breathing, shallow breathing type um, trigger. And that can also cause glucose to sort of spurt out along with blood pressure elevations too. So now I tell my patients, if you're not speaking in a Zoom meeting, you can breathe slowly, you know, just do nasal breathing, do slow breathing. I've actually noticed that when I breathe slower, even in the car and things, I look at my resting heart rate sometimes, and I can bring it down just by doing slow breathing. So, so the breathing's a big part of it. And you're right, when you have those spaces to walk outside, if you can reflect and just convey gratitude for every single thing, the trader, your grocer, like there's so many things being done for us that we really do take for granted. And having that opportunity for those many moments of gratitude paired with some of the breathing practices can be super powerful. That is so interesting about the, um, what do you say, email? Uh, apnea. apnea. Yeah, that's yeah. So, I've never heard about that, but it makes so much sense. And not only that, most people are mouth breathers, and that's going to be more sympathetic versus nostril breathing. But he also said something really good, which is you're not necessarily taking deep breaths. I think that's what you said. You're taking slow breaths. And when I interviewed Patrick McEwen, who wrote Oxygen Advantage, he was talking about that. We did some exercises and so I mouth tape at night, which, you know, forces me to nostril breathe. And when I'm speaking a lot, you're right. I do feel like I'm getting more sympathetic. And I've, wor I've worn CGMs too. And even though I'm in a fasted state, when I'm so excited and I'm speaking a lot, I'll look at my CGM. I'm like, man, am I spiking up because I'm so excited? But now it makes sense because I'm not breathing properly and I'm just, you know, speaking too oh, much. By the way, have you ever checked your heart rate while you speak too? Like in lectures, do you know you're resting versus you're speaking? No, but now I, don't I want know if to. Wearable. Yeah. 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 For me, it's like a 30 or 40 plus point elevation, wow. especially if I'm on stage and stuff. It's crazy. You know, it's amazing how much, and you know, I'm not discouraged. I mean, that's, that's awesome. That means we, we're getting excitement out of life. That's a thrill. Yes. Like, yeah. you know, we're not criticizing that, but you know, again, when I see patients that are execs, entrepreneurs, or anybody that's in life where they they have these moments that elevate them like that. That's kind of taught me that I can't be jumping like, okay, in the old days, the old me would give a talk at a high tech company, 
I'd race back into the clinic, start seeing patients, I'd race somewhere else. So it was like one high adrenaline moment immediately followed by the other. This could be a working mom, you know, this could be anybody. And this has really forced me to take those pauses. Like I'm not going to schedule back-to-back-to-back podcast interviews or back-to-back-to-back patients without taking a break there. And sometimes I don't have the space, but I'm like, okay, in this meeting, I'm going to do very little talking. I'm going to listen. I'm going to be a great listener. And I'm just going to breathe really slowly. And I look at my watch because I know where my heart rate is. And I'm actually just breathing to bring that heart rate back down. But yeah, the the heart rate, because I don't always have a CGM on, that's been a great way for me to regulate sort of my breathing and stress. And I really encourage my patients to do that because sometimes it's so subtle, you're not even aware of it. And you're like, whoa, why is my heart rate 110 when I'm just standing still right now? And you realize it's all that emotional adrenaline that's pumping through our system. So so good. And, and you make a good point. It's, it's not a bad thing, but you want to you want to balance out the sympathetic tone with the parasympathetic and too many of us that are myself included, just sympathetic dominant. Something I look at, is uh, my heart rate variability with my aura ring, right? So can you talk a little bit about the value of looking at that heart rate variability? Yeah, the heart rate variability is really the most easily accessible metric for parasympathetic activity that we have. So, you know, typically people think of heart rate like a normal heart rate. And I used to think like this way 15 years ago, that a normal heart rate should be metronomic. It should be boom, boom, boom with nice regular intervals. But that's actually a lack of parasympathetic activity. So I kind of remind people just like variety is a spice of life. We want variety in our heartbeat too. And this isn't something you would detect by listening to your heartbeat, but there are subtle beat to beat variations. And when we have that variation, that's a sign that your parasympathetic system is more active. And so that translates into a higher heart rate variability. I'm wearing R ring as well, too. And you can see your data based on HRV in terms of whether you're having more of a high stress day or more of a balanced day. And those are good ways for you to sort of remind yourself that, okay, maybe I need to do some mindfulness practices. It's also a good way, you know, as you know, a lot of elite athletes use this to know that are they overtraining? A lot of us that are hooked on adrenaline, I'm, the, I'm one of these people, by the way, I have a tendency to overexercise. I have to keep reminding myself to take rest days, but sometimes it doesn't always correlate, but the HRV sometimes does tell me that, okay, Ron, today's a day for yoga and just walk the dog and then just freaking chill out, man, don't do anything high intensity. So, so HRV is um, getting to be a, a really good marker for people that are performing at all levels to provide that awareness about whether parasympathetic and sympathetic are out of balance. Yeah, it's such a great tool, something I look at a lot. And my goal is to, first of all, everybody's going to have a different HRV based off of so many, so many different scenarios, genetics plays a part. So find your baseline, and then work on increasing it. And that's what I've done over the years, my baseline used to be 33, right? And then now it's 70, 80. And my goal is just to get just keep working on that balance between parasympathetic and sympathetic. One of the biggest things that has improved my HRV, deep sleep, REM sleep, just just overall health, well being, is eating an earlier meal, meaning I used to skip breakfast, have lunch and dinner, finish eating by 6pm. And then I got into a lot of the research out there on early time restricted feeding, uh, Professor Courtney Peterson from Alabama, Birmingham, all these studies that show actually eating breakfast and lunch and skipping dinner, you could get more autophagy, more of this cert one gene and more digestion before you go to sleep. So I experimented with it. And it transformed my HRV and my sleep. And uh, just doing that one thing, like giving me more time, more hours of digestion before sleeping, made a huge difference with my HRV. Uh, have you seen that? And what do you personally eat a late dinner? Like what is your Great routine? Hey, I was going to ask you, um, what time is your last meal usually? What, what is your interval between dinner and bedtime? Well, it's on the weekends when there's a dinner, those are the exception. That'll be 6 or 7 p.m. But when I'm following the structure, I'm done eating by 3 p.m. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, fantastic. I'm glad you bring that up because we literally, again, I wish I had standard answers for all of this, but this is where we see so much human variability. And for some of our patients, especially a lot of our patients that have a lot of digestive issues, acid reflux, they might have a lot of bloating, etc. You know, when they put food in their mouth, it's causing digestive stress. And if that's going to be close to bedtime, when they're going to be inactive, it's going to definitely have more of a sympathetic response because that food is struggling to get through the system. Um, and that can disrupt sleep, um, all the things you're talking about. And that's going to translate into a higher HRV the next day. Um, so, lower. Yeah. So, so the other, I'm sorry, lower HRV. Thanks. Yeah. Lower yeah. HRV the next day. So more sympathetic stress. But I've also seen in individuals 
who are finishing their meals early, and this could be even below six, you know, before 6 p.m., before 5 p.m., sometimes they're getting very erratic sugars during the nighttime, and it's actually causing a little bit of sympathetic stress for them. So on the other side, sometimes we see that folks that are eating too early, and some people having no carbs at nighttime, we find that that's a major signal for the liver to, to produce more glucose. So I tell people to sort of experiment, and in some of my individuals, I need to actually tell them, listen, go from 3 or 4 p.m., maybe let's move to 5 or 6 p.m., add some healthy starches to that meal and let's see what happens. And their sugar does stabilize and it looks like stress response and everything's really good. But other folks, we have to do what you're talking about where we just have to bring that meal time earlier and that definitely helps them. Because again, especially if their digestion's slow, even if they finish at 4 p.m., they might be digesting for several hours. So the body's seeing glucose like throughout the night just because they don't have a very vigorous um, digestive system. But it is something really important to keep in mind. The second thing, since we're talking about the sleep effect, and I mentioned the word apnea, is um, definitely a lot of folks, they don't have overt sleep apnea at night, but they have very subtle sleep disorder breathing issues. And my good friend and colleague, Dr. Mark Berhenna, he's actually done a lot of the work around nasal breathing. Um, he was actually an advisor to James Nestor in his book as well, too. So he really popularized a trend for you know mouth taping but what he taught me because again in medical school i was kind of aware of overt sleep apnea but even these subtle breathing issues that are happening during the night another major stressor to the system that can cause glucose elevations and cause you to wake up in a sympathetic state because could you imagine that stress to the liver like it's nighttime you're asleep and your brain is not getting adequate oxygen it's literally like somebody's putting saran wrap over your face sleeping, that's going to translate into a disruption in HRV as well. Yeah. And plus, you know, in Chinese medicine, that what a two to 4 a.m. At, at night is when that liver is dumping bile, super active. Exactly so, right. I, I, that's so true. Yeah. So it's another another sign. And you're right about experimentation. Just because that works really well for me might not be the case for somebody else. They might get the opposite response where their cortisol is shooting up and they need to eat a little bit closer. I've noticed a lot of people have issues with Caffeine, especially caffeine in coffee. Now, don't get me wrong. I love myself a cup of quality coffee, but the truth is I've seen so many of my Keto Camp Academy students have a glucose spike from caffeine, knocking them out of fasting or creating some digestive issues, bloating, and most commonly, jitters and irritability. We know excessive caffeine and caffeine sensitivity can cause adrenal problems, which has a lot of negative effects it makes you more dependent on the caffeine and it puts you in this sympathetic fight or flight state. And for a lot of people, that is problematic. Everyday Dose solves the problem of regular coffee while drastically building on its benefits with added supplements. What I love about Everyday Dose, it's low acidity, cold extracted coffee, and a micro dose of caffeine blended with collagen protein, functional mushrooms, and nootropics which will improve your focus, your energy, and your immunity. I just feel different in a really good way when I have Everyday Dose versus regular coffee. And I want you to experience the same. So if you want to check out Everyday Dose, head over to everydaydose.com Ben and use the coupon code KETOCAMP. You're going to get an extra five on the go dose travel pack to take with you anywhere you go. I take these travel packs with me and it is a game changer because when I'm traveling, it's hard to find First of all, a clean cup of coffee, but almost impossible to find coffee with these functional ingredients. So head over to everydaydose.com slash ketocamp. Use ketocamp to get your bonus gift or click the link in the podcast notes down below. I will challenge you to this. I think we can agree. We'll see that we should not eat and go to bed, meaning there should be some time of digestion, whether three or four hours versus eating and going to bed. Uh, do you agree or is there some scenarios where somebody- Oh, no, yeah, that, that's a really good point. I have not seen any situation in my clinical practice and also looking at very high quality studies uh, throughout the world where like eating and going right to bed is good for us. I, I can't even imagine a scenario where that would be good. <laughs> yeah, you know, when I think during the day, you know, I think we're both a fan of like spacing meals out if we can. You know, I do see some patients because of their situation, they've got adrenal fatigue, they need more frequent meals, et cetera. So, so that's where sometimes I'm doing things that are a little bit more atypical in terms of feedings throughout the day. But nighttime, yeah, I, I'm totally 100%. Well, we got to find something to disagree on, but this is not going to be it. So, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> something that I've seen that's uh, interesting with those who have reactive hypoglycemia who actually need to have something later on in the day versus uh, going into bed too much fasted because they get that steep drop and then the cortisol goes up. 
I've experimented with a few of my students who we were seeing this in the CGM and I'm like, well, why is this happening? So we've actually, and this is just an experiment. We had them take L-carnitine before bed and uh, it actually did the trick for two out of two so far. Well, you know, we got to do some more experiments, but my hypothesis is that the L-carnitine is kind of like a shuttling um, nutrients to your mitochondria to produce more ketones, kind of regulating that spike. Uh, which is, have you used L-carnitine at all? What are your thoughts on that experiment? I have not, but I've seen the research on L-carnitine, its effects on lipolysis and exactly what you brought up as well too. So that's a, that's a hack that I haven't tried yet. So that's good to know. You know, there's other hacks I've tried to stabilize glucose and reactive hypoglycemia from using, you know, resistant starches, you know, berberine at nighttime can be helpful. Some folks find with apple cider vinegar, there might be an impact, but the L-carnitine I hadn't looked at. So I'll, I'll definitely look into that more. Yeah, yeah, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. But that's good. Berberine and apple cider vinegar. I like those tips. Fasting. You love fasting, but like fasting is a tool. Uh, chainsaw is a tool. You got to know how to use the chainsaw. So what are the pros and cons of fasting? Yeah, it, well, maybe I should start with some of the cons because as much as I've been a fan of fasting, you know, little I, I did a podcast episode on some of my real concerns about fasting because like you talked about, fasting is therapeutic, it's a medication, but like any medication, if it's used the wrong way, it can have adverse side effects. So the first thing is, whatever your fasting window is, whether you're doing the traditional 16-8 time-restricted eating, you're eating from, let's say, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., we got to make sure you're getting the adequate nutrients during that window. I have a lot of like type A people that come to see me, and they're like, oh, I didn't know about fasting, but I skipped breakfast already. I'm doing it already. But obviously, they're not doing it in a healthy way because their glucose is all over the map and they're just not looking very good from a metabolic perspective. So one thing is, yes, identify the timing that works for you and then just make sure you're getting adequate protein, macro, micronutrients during that eating window. The other thing that's really, really key, and this is missing in my patient population, especially in Silicon Valley, is most of my patients that have conducted fasting by the time they see me they're not lifting or doing any strength. They're doing minimal amounts of exercise. And this is where fasting can be a big issue, especially if you're monitoring body composition. Because a lot of that weight loss is that is so alluring to folks that are fasting. Now that I'm looking at their body composition, at least 40 to 50% in some cases are because of muscle loss. And that is a loss. Uh, you know, that, that to me is like, I'd rather have you gain a little bit of weight than lose muscle, especially as we get above uh, age 30, 40. So uh, many of my patients now have literally gotten to the point where like, if you're not in a strength training program and you're not getting adequate protein through your diet, I actually don't want you fasting. I mean, we can basically agree upon a scheduled time for eating that's going to work better than what you're doing right now. But I don't want you doing anything extreme until I know you've got good muscle stores, we're activating mTOR, we're getting adequate protein, we're doing all that stuff. So it, it's a twist on it a little bit because now I'm looking at the biometric impact of it. And then these are the folks that they're getting weaker, you know, and sometimes when they go back to their normal diet, they gain weight very fast because they don't realize that they actually have slowed down their metabolism by doing that. So I'd be curious to know your experience too, because I know you deal a lot with fasting. With people. Yeah, I know. I, I love, I love it. I mean, you clearly know what you're talking about, right? So I respect your your input on it. I agree with you. You know, there's a delicate dance and balance between what you said, mTOR, which is anabolic and growth versus autophagy, which is catabolic and repair. They're both really powerful when you use it the right way. You need to get spurts of the mTOR, spurts of the autophagy, but I see the same thing. I love fasting. I think it it, it really helps with digestion and autophagy and all the great things we love about it. But to your point, too much of a good thing will turn up being a bad thing. It's too catabolic, and muscle has been called that longevity organ. It's it's very important. It helps you absorb more glucose. It helps prevent from you know uh, your osteoporosis, osteopenia. So there has to be a balance, and the protein part is very important in that, right? Because most people, when I when I ask students to calculate their protein, they're under eating protein, and it's it's so important. If you're gonna fast excessively your chances are you're going to under eat protein and that's not a good thing. So like you said, there has to be a balance there. And for a lot of people, they fall in love with fasting. I'm guilty of it several years ago and I just did a lot of fasting, but you, you need to balance it out with the, with the feasting. And that's the way we're genetically hardwired to go. Feast, famine cycle. So too many people forget about the feasting part, eating enough protein. So I'm with you. I'm with you on that. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that anabolism, catabolism, that balance has to be there. When we wake up in the morning, people get fixated with the fat burning side of it, which is exciting. When people go out, they exercise in a fasted state, great, we are burning fat, but we have to be aware that when we wake up in the morning, 
we're highly susceptible to muscle catabolism as well. So you can do your fasted workout. I'm not against that. I love doing that too. But darn, that first meal when you come back from that workout, it better be solid amounts of protein. You know, a lot of my patients, because again, I see a lot of vegetarians who are like, don't worry, I have a boiled egg in the morning. I'm like, that's seven grams of protein. We're nowhere near where you need to be to Add five more, please. <laughs> right, please. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what is your uh, general recommendation for protein? I know it depends on various things, but just a general recommendation for protein. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think the simple rule for most people is based on lean body mass, and you can do the estimates on that. For my average patients, it really is coming down to be about a gram of protein per pound body weight, just to keep it simple. And then for some people, I might up titrate to 1.2, 1.5. But on average, one gram is what we're looking for. And then making sure they're really distributing that protein in a proper way, because some people just cram it all in like they're studying for an exam at dinner, or you know, it's very unbalanced. But really, that first meal effect is, is really key. So making sure we do activate mTOR with that first meal. And that's the beauty. It's like, if you can get that adequate, because some of my patients are really averse. They're like, oh God, that morning, I just don't feel like eating it. But it's just the way their digestive tract has been conditioned for many, many years. But once you get them used to that, and I'm not saying they have to go from five grams to 50, but okay, let's maybe gradually go up a little bit. So your stomach acid, your whole system is getting used to waking up and feeling hungry. And that does eventually occur. But then I just make sure let's get that X amount of protein, 30, 40 grams, usually minimum is what we need. And then as you probably know, from your experience, glucose levels are much more stable. All of a sudden, we're not seeing hypoglycemic you know, effects at 3 or 4 p.m. They don't feel like tearing through the pantry, eating everything in sight. So it's a great, great satiety tool in terms of um, you know, starting off the day. And then mental energy, mood, everything goes along with that. And if you're wearing a CGM, you're going to see your glucose is going to be a lot more stable. So that literally, for your audience, for my patients, it's low-hanging fruit. I haven't told you to take anything away. I'm literally telling you to eat a little bit more with that first meal. And let's see what happens as a result of that. Yeah, that's a great tip. Uh, and by the way, your, his, your recommendation for those who missed it was one gram of protein per pound of ideal body weight, not not total body weight, correct? Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So if your goal weight is to get to like 130 pounds, that would be 130 grams of protein uh, most days to be able to hit that. But you know, we talked about why it's important to feast and fasting can be problematic for a lot of people. But let me ask you this. The average American is kind of all mTOR all day long. They're snacking, they're grazers. What are the problems with being a grazer and a snacker all day long? Well, you you know, aside from the, the chronic mTOR activation, what we see is you're you're having frequent pulses of insulin all throughout the day, right? So so you know, we do want to activate insulin in episodic manner, but when it's continuous spikes throughout the day, that's a huge metabolic stress. So one of the concepts I teach people about is that your beta cells, which produce the insulin that's gonna bring your blood glucose down, I often tell them that your beta cell is kind of like a battery, okay? And the more times we sort of turn up the volume by releasing insulin throughout the day, we're actually reducing the longevity of your beta cells. So at some point, it's not gonna be able to pump out enough insulin to regulate your glucose. And that's when we're gonna see rapid onset of type 2 diabetes. Our goal is we want to use the least amount of insulin possible to clear the nutrients that we're putting in our bloodstream. And if you're grazing and snacking throughout the day, you're constantly turning on that beta cell battery to the point that it's going to wear out at some point. So that's one of the rationales. And also, people that have these frequent ups and downs, that can actually put a lot of adrenal stress on the body. And it also can uh, lead to more inflammation at the blood vessel level. So people that have very high spikes and lows, and this is happening throughout the day, it does actually cause increased inflammation at the blood vessel level, which can cause more plaque formation. Sorry, those are my notifications going on. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> I'm checking the time as I heard that. Like, yeah, yeah, my blood glucose spikes when that sound comes up, actually. <laughs> so, right? Totally, everybody's does, right? It's like, oh, is that, I got a meeting coming up. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, you, you're you're so right. Uh, and most people, they're they're grazers. They're eating glucose insulin. Glucose insulin. I love the analogy that you just gave about the beta cells being a battery. It's so true. It's like the more you use it, the, the more you're going to deplete that battery. So for you, when you were in, you said you had high insulin resistance back in the day. Were you grazing all day long? I, you know, I wasn't grazing all day. I was, I was doing three meals and maybe one snack uh, occasionally, but just a glycemic load of having even steel cut oats and banana in the morning and then having whole wheat bread sandwiches. I mean, if you add it all up, I was easily 250, 300 grams of carb. And then the type of training, I was probably doing too much high intensity and not quite enough lifting as I should have. So, so now that I've gotten much more um, thoughtful about improving endurance, mitochondrial function, I, I can probably eat like I did 10 years ago with minimal uh, impact to my blood 
you know, compared to before, but I'm still not going to do it just because of my beta cell battery and all the things that we talked about. So, so that is one other marker I want to tell people is even if your labs are looking great, it's not a license for you to eat like you're a teenager because there's other sorts of metabolic damage and duress that we're causing that are not easy, easily measured through a blood test. So again, you can give yourself more latitude and flexibility because now you are more insulin resilient, as I call it, but it's still not a free pass to just go crazy eating whatever you want. Because I know there are some folks out there that are like, once you get to this stage, you can go hog wild, like, you know, carb load on whatever you want, because now you're, you, you, can, you can do whatever you want. But, you know, I, I would definitely not advise for that. So. I love that. I love that term insulin resilient instead of insulin resistant. I haven't heard that. I've heard insulin sensitive, but that's great. You know, the name of the game is how can you find ways to downregulate cell inflammation, right? How can you create more sensitive receptor sites? Let those hormones be heard. And you do that through various ways that you mentioned today, parasympathetic, sympathetic balance, uh, intermittent fasting the right way, increasing healthy fat and protein, decreasing carbs, the last thing we're going to close out here, the conversation and land the plane with is your three C's. And I know this is, <laughs> I'm asking you as the last question, but there's, I know this could go for hours, but if you could kind of just recap those three C's that you teach about in the next couple of minutes, and then we'll, we'll land the plane here. Yeah. It's been a while since I've used it three C's, but I know Carbs, one's carbohydrates, cooking oils and, and circadian, circadian rhythm, rhythm right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thanks for reminding me. You know, I, I use so many different mnemonics and hooks that sometimes I lose track of them myself. I get that. <laughs> right. So, so I think carbs we've talked about in quite a bit of detail and just one high level I'd want to say is I'm not an anti-carb guy by any means. I take care of some elite athletes, right? And they're consuming over 400 grams of carbohydrate a day because their muscles deserve that energy because they're constantly working and training. You know, if I have somebody who's a sedentary software engineer that's just expending a fraction of that, then yeah, a certain amount of carbohydrates is going to be toxic, right? So, so as I remind that, because sometimes people look at my work and say, oh, you're the anti-carb doctor. I'm like, I'm anti-carb for people that are sedentary and they're exceeding their carb capacity. But you know, once you become metabolically very active, oftentimes you can add, you know, I'm definitely able to eat far more carbohydrates than I could, you know, 15 years ago. So that's one of the key points on the carbohydrate part. The cooking oils we have to be aware of because definitely um, a lot of the vegetable oils and especially we have to be aware of this now because the food industry is caught on to low carb and keto, right? So now there's a lot of different food products. There's bars, there's shakes, there's cookies, all types of stuff that you can get. And yes, true, they're labeled as being low carbohydrate. But if you look at the types of oils they're using, they can be highly inflammatory. And that's something we can't easily measure on a blood test. I mentioned C-reactive protein, but that's a more extreme marker. But many patients are suffering from chronic inflammation, and you're not going to be able to diagnose that through a blood test. So be sure now that the food industry has caught on to this, that you're not you know, consuming foods that are you know, using the wrong types of oils and all the other artificial ingredients that are being packaged into keto and low-carb foods. And then circadian rhythm we touched on. So definitely the meal timing and just really paying attention to the bedtime, um, trying to get the morning sunlight. Those things do have a powerful impact on glucose control. And one other thing I, I kind of forgotten about, because I love the fact that you brought up inflammation a few times, just like I told you the emotional impact on glucose, I've had so many patients with persistently elevated C-reactive proteins and marker for inflammation. And the only thing they changed was they improved their circadian rhythm or they integrated stress reduction skills and breathing. We brought their C-reactive protein down. And it reminds you that emotion, emotions, not only are they direct trigger to glucose spikes, but they're a major inflammatory signal. Because again, the body's going into alert stage, right? Alert means more glucose, alert means more inflammation. And episodically, that's okay. But if you're living in that chronic state of threat, then glucose, inflammatory markers, all those things can manifest. And that's why, you know, when I talk to a lot of companies, I, I talk about this syndrome called entrepreneur syndrome, where everything is good on paper, VO2 max, endurance, metabolic numbers are great, but why do they have a massive plaque in their heart, right? This is coming from that emotional metabolism that I'm so passionate about. These are things that are not going to come up on the guidelines. Your doctor's not going to be able to measure it. So this is where you have to take ownership and responsibility for your own health. And hopefully, you know, information like this will motivate you to do the things that we know we need to do. That's so good. Ah, so good. And then the cooking oil thing, you're so right. A lot of these keto products have these seed oils and artificial sweeteners that, that are yeah keto friendly. They're not health friendly. Real quick, I interviewed... 
two days, just two days ago, I brought Dr. K Shanahan on. I'm doing an online keto challenge. Do you know Dr. K Shanahan, medical doctor? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we were connected a while ago because um, we both are allied with Mark Sisson, yeah. who's my publisher. Yeah. So yeah, Kate's great. I love the work that she's done. Yeah, she, she's great. And she came on and gave us, you know, gave us all a masterclass on linoleic acid. But I asked her this question. I said, Dr. Kate, three scenarios. Which one is worse? Number one, somebody smokes cigarettes every day. Number two, somebody ate processed sugar every day. Number three, somebody ate seed oils every day. And she's like, Ben, that's easy. Seed Ooh, oils. Check that <laughs> she's out. Like, she goes, and I want to know if you agree, but she says, uh, when you smoke cigarettes, you know, that last puff damage is done. When you eat sugar, you could stay active, burn it off. It doesn't stick around for a long time. But she said linoleic acid stays in your body fat for two to five years. And that's the reason why she chose seed oils. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And she's definitely an expert in that area. I'm still leaning towards smoking a little bit, but but I do get the fact, I mean, it is nice so when patients quit, how quickly the body can regenerate. So I sort of get her point about the duration and half-life of toxicity that you get from seed oils. So, yeah. Yeah, and this is not to promote smoking, by the way. Don't <laughs> right. get confused, everybody. <laughs> right. Last question is, what are you grateful for today? What's your vitamin G? My vitamin G is, uh, honestly, I'm saying is anytime I have the opportunity to educate a new audience, which this podcast has been, I'm grateful for that. And that's not something I do a lot of interviews, but every time it's just, I feel like I'm very honored and grateful to even have this opportunity to even have one person listen to me. So I'm grateful for that now going forward. Awesome. I'm grateful for you, Ron. Your website is culturalhealthsolutions.com. Your Instagram is... Uh, what is your Instagram? I have it here, but I can't see it's, it. Yeah, it's at Ronish Sinha. So my full name, Ronish Sinha, MD. MD. Got it. We'll put and it down if below. if you guys love nerdy information on metabolism, uh, I have a lot of people following my podcast, which is called Meta Health. And I use a lot of visual imagery and storytelling to talk about acetyl-CoA, all the nerdy stuff. And I've got, I'm amazed at how people, people have literally come to this podcast and they say, now I understand Peter Atia. I get what he's talking about, like little things like that. So if you really want to nerd out on biochemistry, but learn it in a very fun way, is we use a lot of imagery as we talk, um, the podcast might be a fun place for you to check out. I love it. We'll put all that down below. Go, go check it out. And uh, Ron, I'm grateful for you. Thank you for your brilliance. I had a, a great time and I look forward to doing a round two with you. That was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed that awesome conversation with Dr. Ron. I told you he's great. Share this with a friend. Share it with somebody you believe who could get value from a conversation like this. Go check out his website culturalhealthsolutions.com. Go subscribe to his podcast, the Meta Health Podcast. Go check him out on social media. Uh, we'll put that down below. If you want to watch the video version of today's interview, that could be found on youtube.com slash keto camp. And uh, share this episode with on social media as well. And then leave it a rating and review if you haven't done so already. He's great. I'll bring him back. Uh, can't wait for that already. And if you haven't downloaded my free keto camp shopping guide, head over to ketocampblueprint.com. I've got vitamin G for you. Thanks for listening to the whole episode. I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.